You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Okay, so we invest in property because we want to secure our financial future. We want to retire independently and not rely on welfare. We might want to give our kids a leg up too along the way. All bloody good reasons. Investing in property can be an insurance policy for our hopefully long and healthy life. But does our insurance policy need an insurance policy? I mean, what if we don't end up living a long and healthy life after all? What if we encounter hurdles before we achieve our goal of financial freedom? Are we planning for this? And if not, why not? In this episode, we're talking about protection with Craig Bigelow, founder and head insurance advisor at True Pride. Craig's goal is to help you tell your own insurance story, which allows you to have the minimum amount of insurance at all times. I'm not completely sure what he means by this, but it sounds compelling. Thank you very much for joining us, Craig. We're so glad you've achieved one of the big dreams you had growing up, which was... Uh, to talk about insurance at barbecues. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a dream of everyone, right? Yeah. Well, um, maybe after this podcast, we'll all be able you, to do it. <laughs> um, it's interesting to have this conversation because we've done what we 80 odd episodes now. It's always about, you know, invest, invest, invest. Um, and no one really wants to think about well, what they can do to protect themselves because it's not fun, it's not sexy. Why do you think we've got such a big underinsurance problem in the country and it's just something that's not going away? I think there's there's two problems. I think traditionally insurance is just one of those things that people don't want to think or talk about. And like wills. Like wills. Mm. They they fall into that basket of that nag until that nag becomes strong enough you go and do something. A bit like going to the dentist, right? Mm-hmm. You you know you should do it, you should go and do these sort of things, but there's a hole in your tooth and then when you bite down on something and it hurts enough, you go and get it done. Yeah. So most of the people I talk to tell me it's been on their list for a long time. Mm. Um, so I think the underinsurance problem comes in for two reasons. One, people think that they've got enough already so Mm -hmm. they've got some cover through their super they might have looked at it once saw it and go yep or they've they've looked at going and speaking to someone about it and they're a bit nervous because there's so much media attention on rogue advisors that are notoriously selling too much cover so i think there's it's twofold in that Mm. way or even thirdly i mean they've gone and seen an advisor and they haven't had a great experience Mm. or they went for financial advice Oh, they got sure sold insurance, yeah. you know, and so that mm. kind of sometimes they go, oh, I don't, I'm not here to get insurance. I'm here to, you know, plan my future. And then the advisor's trying to sell them insurance. Mm. In terms of the, um, you know, you said there around that it's all a bit too difficult. They've, you know, what do you think is the way that people can simplify it in their mind and why they need insurance? 
Well, I think it changes over time. So when you're pre-kids and pre-debt and that sort of thing, I think you just need to be really selfish with your insurance. So most of the time you'll have life insurance, which is completely irrelevant. So yeah. if you're single hmm. or if you're in a couple and you don't have kids, if you die, you're just going to make someone else richer. So mm. I think we look at things that aren't really relevant to our needs at the time. Mm-hmm. And the other thing with that is that when you're young, you don't want to spend money on something that you hope you never need. Yeah. So I, I can think of a million things I'd rather spend money on than insurance. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of a bit of a reluctance there. But to make it simple, when you have kids and when you have debt and that sort of thing, you do, f- I guess, feel that sense of obligation to other people. And mm-hmm. that's traditionally where you'll sit down and try and do this properly. Um, I think the Barefoot Invest has been awesome at giving people a really good framework for, you know, a multiple of your salary as a starting point, going back to your super fund and doing that sort of thing, which is an awesome start for people to look at Mm. and just work out at least a starting point for their Mm. insurance and start that conversation because Mm. he's built an immense amount of trust Mm -hmm. and people take action. Mm. So I think that's made it a bit easier for people. Mm. And I think the only thing to that is that you mentioned the minimum levels of cover. I just think that doesn't actually provide a framework for people to reduce the amount of insurance you have. So Mm. I know a lot of your listeners are property investors and building wealth that way. When there's a gap, you need to protect it. But that gap typically gets smaller as, as you get older. Yeah. Um, and if you're doing a multiple of salary, as you get older, your salary's probably getting more. Mm. So instead of needing less, the multiple of salary will say you're needing more. So you yeah. talked about under-insurance, but over-insurance. I, I think mm. it's a real thing. And, and a lot of the people that I'm meeting now are in their 40s or so, and they've had insurance before, and the premiums when they first started were down here. Or yeah, lower, they go up every and year. they're massive, <laughs> and all that they can do is look at what's the price this year versus what it was last year mm-hmm. and change it based on that. So you just... Focusing on price a lot. And it is really difficult to get advice on insurance. I mean, you go to an insurance company, like, for instance, insuring your building, your yep. house, right? How much should I insure it for? Oh, we can't advise you on that. Mm. Well, if you can't and you're the insurance company, who the hell can? Yep. Mm. Um, and so then people are, you know, forced to go, well, what would it cost to rebuild the house if they got mm. burnt down? Or what else do I have to think about? There's very, very little guidance. And that's not even insuring yourself. That's insuring your assets. Mm. Um, so- Especially if you try to get life insurance yourself because you'll call up, I don't know, uh, compare the market and I select mm. or something or you'll – an advertisement you go direct to the insurer because you don't want to see a financial advisor and then when you call that person they're meant to give you general advice they're mm. not meant to give you financial advice no. and so if you start asking them questions about what's the right policy for me well they can't actually advise on that can they Craig and then it all just gets too hard mm. you know you get frustrated you've been on hold for 15 minutes yeah. you get there and you want someone to answer pretty basic questions how much insurance should I have? Yeah. Uh, how much will it cost? What happens if this happens? Yeah. Um, and then you just get frustrated. You hang up and it just remains on your to-do list. Yeah. So, so uh, a lot of people think uh, private health insurance, they've got that, so they're, like, covered. What's what's the big difference between where private health insurance stops and where you need other things like life insurance? Well, I think the need, it's an interesting question because need is quite objective. Mm-hmm. Um we all need certain things, but you really only need it if you need to claim. That's the, the yeah. truth of it. So most people will spend money on insurance that they will never need, and mm. that's actually a good thing. That's right? the goal, right? So yeah. the idea is to work out what money you're spending on the overall spend. So you talk about your house insurance, your health insurance, and your personal insurance and boat, car, pet, whatever it might be, but I just look at it as a pool of money. And Scott addresses it perfectly. I, I keep referring back to him and he just Are said... Are you his greatest groupie? Well, I'm actually... 
I, I am and I'm not. <laughs> I like a lot of the stuff and I just think that there's some really good starting points there. But when you go further than that, and he says it as a general advice mm. um, book. And yep. I think with that is, is looking at the amount of money that you're spending overall and working out which are the ones are most important for right. you. So, And also where you get the best bang for buck. Yeah. You know, ensuring your iPhone, you spend $180 a year on doing that. But end of the day, you lose your iPhone, you drop it. Um, yes, it's $1,000, but it's not changing. Mm. You know, but you could spend $180,000 on some good income protection or things like that. You're going to get much better bang for your buck, right? Um, but it's mm. funny how we will we'll protect our phone, but we won't protect our life. Well, so to answer your question about the private health insurance thing, it's private health will do a bit, right? So you've got Medicare, so we can get our basic treatment sorted. Yep. Um, private health insurance will allow you to pick your doctor, your surgeon, your hospital, and probably get in a little bit quicker. Yep. Um, but if you've ever used the private health system, there's the Medicare fee, the scheduled fee, and what the doctor actually charges. Mm-hmm. So yep. even with your private health insurance, you're typically walking out with a bill. If you're going in, yep. and if you extrapolate that over a, a long-term health incident, then that number can get pretty big. Um, and some some of your biggest illnesses, what are the ones where that could get really big? I guess. Yeah, well, if, if you start at the beginning, so a hip or knee replacement, if you're um, playing sport or doing that sort of thing when you're young, or as you get older, as you start to fall apart, those are the sort of things that vary drastically between even state by state. The doctor's mm. charges change dramatically, so they find that more affluent. Suburbs pay more, um, mm-hmm. so it does vary dramatically Market from there. pricing, yep. <laughs> so and and they're unregulated. Doctors can charge whatever they want. They're essentially a business. They're running a business, yep. and and I think that's fair enough. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if your premise is costing more than it would if you're in a a yep. lower value suburb, then why shouldn't they charge more money? Mm-hmm. But I think when we get referred to one of these specialists, then we typically have a bit of a bond. You know, our mm. GP says, go and talk to this person. Yeah. yeah. You don't often go. We're not go, shopping around. No. Mm. There's no finder no, for no. specialists. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's so an that, opportunity from someone. Well, there is talk yeah. of um, having doctors publish what their fees will be so mm. that you actually know what's covered. So if you go to the worst case scenario, so your cancers, um, your heart attack, stroke, those yeah. things that have a more debilitative and ongoing sort of nature mm. where you're in there on a regular basis, those sums can add up pretty quickly. And mm. you kind of hope they do because it means that you're alive to have to have the treatment. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, yeah. I think there's a positive in all of them, yeah. but the gap payment is really the one that's there. And then it's also what happens if that stops you from working as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think there's the direct cost, which is kind of what private health tries to mm. address. It's yeah. the direct cost of the... Yeah the treatment or the doctor or the surgeon. And then there's the inherent cost of what can't you do now that you could do before. Yeah. The big opportunity cost is the loss of income, I guess. Um, and that's obviously the biggest. But also private health insurance is not all equal, right? Like, you know, you think you've got cover, but then when you actually go and try to claim, you find out that you've got basic hospital cover, you haven't got the premium version and so they won't cover your hospital and then you've been a whole pointless exercise. So oh, I think- oh, oh, the alternative, the, oh, you know, I'm definitely not going to have any more children. Mm. <laughs> so you're but paying for the I'm know, paying for pregnancy cover because you can't remove that without removing a whole bunch of other stuff that I do need mm. or might need. Hopefully it won't need. But, but I'm but, paying yeah. for pregnancy cover too. Are you? Yeah, but I'm never going to claim on pregnancy cover. It's because it's all kind of premiums going to pot, right? Mm. And so, you know, all the risks of... You know, let's say mental health. Like, you know, we're all paying for mental health, but only a it's portion. all bundled. Yeah. Right. So it's not unbundled. It's like if you went and went to Foxtel and you could just pick the only channels that you want. That's right. Instead, and you've got to pick their buckets. 
And instead, <laughs> you, you're then trying to play God. Like, what is yeah. actually going to happen to me? Yeah. So if you tried to pick a sweet that was tailor-made, oh, my dad had heart attack, so yeah. I'll have mm. that. And oh, my mum had breast cancer, but I'm, male, I'm not going to have <laughs> pick that. Pick and mix you illnesses. Know what I mean? like, yeah. It just, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry, I laugh. Well, unfortunately, they're not designed to do that, mm. and I think it's probably a yeah. good thing. You should be able to tick or untick pregnancy, though. I think you should. I think you, as a man, should be able to go no, and I, me, as a woman of a certain age, should be able to go no. But the hard part <laughs> is that, you know, when you go through the, and you talk about people finding it difficult to get insurance, you go to an application, you finally make the decision to do it, mm. and then you come back and there's exclusions, you yeah. know. And what really bothers me about insurance companies is that, let's say for whatever, the most common ones we get are mental health mm-hmm. exclusions yeah. and your, your musculoskeletal, so your back or neck. So right. you talk about private health insurance, we try and, try and use our extras and be the right sort of, yeah. oh, we're getting value for money. Yeah. but. Just because you went to the Cairo five times a year for maintenance, you'll now find you've got a back or neck exclusion on your no. policy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. So, um, Oh, really? So let's say you're an are, elephant. Yeah, I mean, let's say you go through and you apply. Like it's, we're jumping a few guns, but if you do get, you lodge it with an insurance company, what are the outcomes that you could get? Because I think I don't think people understand this as well, and I think it's important Definitely for people not. to understand the outcome the insurance company can provide. What? I tend to get a lot of people who have gone back to their super fund and yeah. they thought it was going to be easy and then they've asked all of these questions and they've come up with a decision and typically with a super fund when you apply with them, it's either accept or decline. You mean a life insurance through life, super? Life insurance right. through super. Yeah. Uh, they don't have as much flexibility with the offers that they yeah. can make right. as what other policies can. So to tell you, explain a bit more what I mean there is that you get the policy or you don't. It, they do have no. simple yeah. variations but with other policies you might have an exclusion for your back an exclusion for mental health. Right. Uh, so when, what does that actually mean though? What does that mean? So when you when you say the options or outcomes, you either get the policy, so that's the right yeah. outcome, you, you get it and they either load or exclude and exclusions mean that you cannot claim for the injury or illness that they've specified on the yeah. policy. Problem with that is though, you pay the same amount, don't you? That's my frustration. Is that, oh, you don't get a discount because so you, mental those health, are out of your. If you choose not to have mental health before you apply for the policy, you'll save. But if you get a decision that like, excludes exclusion. that, they don't charge you any less. So it's super frustrating, um, and it doesn't make sense uh, to me. No. And it, this is why I spend a lot of my time up front. Talking about these things, and it might sound really weird to have some guy you've never met asking you, oh, tell me about your health. Mm. But the reason for that is that I want you to know what the outcome will be before you get it. It's funny because um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's got her daughter going to a psychologist, and someone said to her, oh, if you go to the doctor and get a mental health plan, you can actually get that back on, or a lot of it back on Medicare. So she went along to the doctor, and the doctor said, okay, I need to just um, explain to you the long-term ramifications of what could happen if you get a mental health plan for your daughter. If you are absolutely under financial pressure, um, then, you know, we can talk about doing it, but you've got to understand that basically it's only for, I think, 10 sessions or whatever it was. And actually she's going to have this thing on her record for her life, which is going to impact things like this. All for the sake of saving a few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever, you know, it's actually daunting. I mean, so that doctor explained it. My friend decided not to go ahead. Um, but how many doctors don't explain it? And then years later, you go, oh. It's a tough one because if the doctor didn't uh, didn't provide the mental health plan and there was actually a mental health issue, 
um, he's could be liable for not, for, you know, not. I think. Well, I so, think the conver- are you saying that instead of having the subsidised cost yes. of the treatment, yeah. it's not don't get treatment. No, it's don't do mental health. Exactly. Plan. Yeah. But the yeah. issue with that is when they ask you all the questions, you've got a duty of disclosure to tell them what you've done. Mm. So whether you've got the mental health yes. plan or not, the hard part is that people try and gamify the system. And if you were asked the question, "Have you ever sought treatment?" or medication for any of these things mm. and you say no because you don't have a mental health plan you could technically get done for non-disclosure because you haven't told them the truth it's not about what's on the record it's what's 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 what is your if they you know if you have to claim for mental health in mm. say 10 years time and then they found out that you did actually go see a psychiatrist which could be very easy to but the problem it's is it's harder when it's not on medicare because yeah. they'd have to what they do is when you put in an insurance claim mm. they write to medicare and they get a history of your your treatments and your visits and that sort of thing for a period of time before you right. submitted the application. And what they're trying to do there is cross-reference for things that you knowingly didn't disclose. Yes. So it's not to right. say, oh, I had a cold when so I was. So trying to catch you out. Well, not in, not, not so. It's just checking, I think, is the best way to. Because, mm. I mean, there's a report, and we can talk about it later, but nine out of ten insurance claims get paid. Yeah. And that's ASIC did a report over right. three years okay. from all channels of insurance. So uh, the what they're trying to do there is just cross-reference what you've said to see if there's anything glaringly different. Mm. So if you didn't know that you had a cold when you were 16, you forgot to put it in, that's not an issue. No. But if you had been speaking to the psychiatrist, psychologist, and that was in the lead up and you'd been 57 times in the last three months yeah. and you, f- you forgot, inverted commas, to yeah, let yeah. them know, mm. that's a different story. Well, I think the other problem is, is that... Um, what is mental health versus just normal getting help and guidance to live your best life? And so who then determines that? So yeah. the, the issue too, I, I mean, I can share personal experience. I went to speak to my doctor when I started the business. Mm. I was making lists of my clients' names in my head during my sleep. And Carly <laughs> said, this probably isn't the right thing Not to healthy. be doing. So I went to the doctor, mm. I spoke to them, I got the mental health plan. And what shocked me was they actually have to put a diagnosis. This is what the doctor told me afterwards. They put a diagnosis on what is going on. Right. So when I submitted my insurance, I had to update my income protection, went back and they're like, you've got adjustment disorder. And I'm like, hmm. That's news to me. <laughs> um, so you've been diagnosed but not told. Yeah. And so I still speak to, he calls himself a performance coach, but for me it's the same thing. I talk about what's going on in mm. my life. It's one of the best things that I do. Yeah. The fact that I've got a mental health exclusion on my policy, I think I'm less likely to claim because yes. I'm addressing yeah. the issues yeah. Yeah. than what I would be had I have continued making lists for the next 50 years. And that's the problem though, isn't it? That, that you know, to not mm. acknowledge and deal with this shit basically means that it's going to get bigger and bigger and yeah. worse yeah. and there's a bit of a disincentive in the system Correct. to deal with it. So the issue with it was... I know we're going on a no, t- no, totally different tangent here. But mental health is a huge issue hmm. and I think it is a, an issue that will have to evolve because at the moment the insurance company is treating it like you've gone to the psychologist, you're yeah. getting an exclusion, hmm. and then so people don't tell them, then it's then basically there's a huge gap. Yeah. And, and one of the biggest ones that frustrates me a lot, and they've come a long way. When I first started doing this about 14 years ago, if you had have spoken about this before, decline. Straight away, mm, decline. Mm. Um, now you'll end up with an exclusion that can be reviewed. So what they're looking for, is there a pattern? Right. So did I start a business and not sleep? Yes. Mm. Did you have a relationship breakdown? Yes. Perfectly normal things mm. that mm. would be normal for someone yeah, to want to Seek to get some assistance about, to help and right? deal with it, yeah. But the issue is that there's no blood tests for mental health. No. And there's no 
limitations to what they're covering. And the biggest challenge I see here is for women. So I had a, a client of mine that was a doctor. Um, they spoke to someone as a kid, right? Mental health exclusion came on, knocks out postnatal depression. So all of it's gone. It's not just wow. like this thing, It not a minute element of mental health. It's all, and that's the difficulty yeah. I see with it is, and it's it's a real problem, mm. and Beyond Blue have done a lot here in terms of discrimination yeah. for applications yeah. that mm. insurance companies are discriminating on the basis of mental health, and I think that we'll see some evolution in this one too. But, yeah. but the issue is that so many claims come mm. from mental health, yeah. and the GFC and times of tough economic yeah. conditions lead to a spiked claim, mm. and because there's no blood tests, it's a little bit like turning up I'm stressed, which leads to a client. If you get yeah. made yeah, redundant, yeah. fired from your job, and you're like, oh, I'm out of options. Mm. Let's go put a claim in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. It's, so it's you can hard. see it both sides. It, it's, it's fraught. Mm. Yeah. So let's go on a different tack. I think we've nailed that. <laughs> um, <laughs> in terms of um, how, how do you approach it with clients? Because, you know, I guess there's a number of different insurances. Um, some people come in with a preconceived idea I need this, I need that. But how do you kind of say, look, let's build a plan, like a, a structure around what insurances I actually need and what's your thought processes and which ones are more valuable than others? So I, I think that no two needs are the same. So everybody's needs are different, but I think the principles are the same. So I'm really big on the principles so that I mentioned having the minimum levels of cover at all time. I think you need a framework not only to get it set up, mm. but also to come back and revisit it. And if you yeah, haven't done things, change, don't they? How often would you revisit? Every year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, if something changes drastically in that year, mm. I offer unlimited check-ins. So no matter when right. something goes wrong, I just want to inform you with the things that are important. And mm. there's some that are significant and some that are insignificant. But if something happens, you're going to know better than I do. I don't have an alert to know that you're now earning a million dollars when mm. you're earning fifty grand when mm. we met. You know what I mean? So, mm. so the big things that will trigger that need to review, what would that be like? A- yeah, so significant changes for me are you, you've started a family, you've taken on more debt, you've sold a property, yep. you've got less debt, You've mm. um, yeah. your kids have grown up, you know. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily be a trigger to review up. It, mm. It's often a trigger to review down. Yeah. Inheritance is a great idea. Mm. You know, your, your business has boomed and it's mm. now worth yeah. significantly more than what it was before. Yeah. So you when it comes need to ensure yourself. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So for me, when you're looking at the principles of this, the importance comes out of the discussion. So I, I just believe in those principles for each of the different types of cover and they can absolutely be self-insured. Mm. So if you look at the principles, I just want you to be able to tell your story. So we are going to do this, right. pay off our debt. We're going to do this, provide a replacement income for mum or dad yep. to be super mum or dad for a period of time. We need X amount of dollars. Mm. We net off your investment assets. So Properties, which yep. will be a lot of the ones here, mm. shares, super, that sort of thing, yep. and then provide some money for your final expenses, mm. your, your mm. funeral and estate planning. In the event of life insurance, for trauma, I think you just need to have a principle that works. So, What come, is trauma though? Um, so trauma insurance was invented. It's a bit unusual. So it's only invented about 30-odd years ago, and it was invented by a doctor. He was a heart surgeon, a guy called Dr. Barnard over in South Africa. And so he actually, interesting guy, performed the first open heart surgery uh, with his brother, the heart transplant. Um, so he went on to... Not of his brother, though. Not of his brother, with his brother. <laughs> he did his own. And- <laughs> but so what it was designed to do, he saw the impact on his patients of... 
he could fix them physically, but he mm. couldn't fix them financially. So he gave an example of a, a young divorcee woman that had come to see him. She had lung cancer. He removed the cancer, treated her, but two years later she came in and he didn't go to her. So in South Africa I think doctors visit a lot more than right. come in. Yeah. She'd come straight from work and now was riddled with cancer because he's like, what are you doing working? And she's like, I can't afford not mm-hmm. to. So the idea of it is that trauma pays you an amount of money to do whatever it takes to get better so just because a doctor can tell you you can go back to work doesn't mean you should right and the difference between the trauma and the income protection the income protection you have to have the inability in a doctor's opinion not to work right where the trauma it's a choice wow okay and so like for example it was i don't know what sort of illnesses that you could see that there's a bit of a disconnect like heart attack for example Technically, you probably go back to work. Six but, weeks, but, they normally say. There you go. Yeah. So mm-hmm. six weeks. But do you really recover from a heart attack after six weeks? A, well, sometimes it might be a lot longer than that, could it? It can be longer or shorter. I've, I've had mm. clients that haven't missed a day of work and had a heart attack client. Yes. So yeah. it can be a little bit of a golden ticket when it comes to trauma insurance for a heart attack. But for me, you just want to do whatever you need to do to make sure it doesn't there happen again. There might be mental health stuff in that too. I mean, let's face it, you're faced with death. You know, you've probably got a few other hurdles other than just purely physical stuff True. that you really want to sort of think through and you might re- completely reevaluate your life. Well, that does happen with insurance. Mm. If you do claim on one thing, you know, if you then go and get other insurance elsewhere, um, you would get excluded for those things that you've then had to claim on, for example, cancer. Right, yeah. But then if you went and get, take the policy, you'd be excluded on cancer over this. You have to pay full price. But if you get... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So- and then... But then I guess it's no, what the insurance meant. company knows, though, that you're a risk now because if you have one illness, you're more likely to have another illness. Do your premiums go up with the existing insurance company? Or the is that only- they don't change the premiums right. like they do with your professional indemnity or your public liability mm. when you have a claim. Yeah. Uh, so they don't change the price of that. But what you want to do is, in the event that you're talking about, Chris, is, is if you had a claim, you can inbuilt things that you can buy it back after a certain amount of time. And there's right. some things that... There's extras with all policies and a lot mm. of the time they're sold to you. But unless the person can explain to you exactly why that's important, you're just getting bells and whistles for the sake of bells mm. and whistles. That's a really good point. That's, I think, why I think advice is so important mm. because, you know, life covers life cover, right? But the other insurances there, you just talk about a few bells and whistles where you, if you don't know, you will click yes rather than no and you've got to pay for it. Well, especially if you're in that zone of like a finally – the insurance has got to the top of my to-do list. Yes. I'm finally doing it. And I'm in that mindset of I'm trying to, you know, make sure that I'm covered in the event of all this stuff. Mm. And you go, oh, well, have you thought about this and this and this and this? And of course you're going to be more likely to tick boxes. I'm sure they've done a whole lot to, a, a bunch of studies on behavioural biases on that, yeah. I would think, you know. I, I just think that there's some that are relevant and others that aren't. And yeah. I think it comes back to what you're trying to do. So with income protection, for example, claims indexation is a really important yeah. one. So what that means is that if you went on claim today, it can pay you for a really long time. So mm. some of these policies will pay you to your 65. Mm. And let's say your monthly benefit today is $10,000. Um, in 20 years' time, if that $10,000 hasn't kept place, kept pace with what yeah. $10,000 buys today, you're not getting 10 grand. So it goes up with inflation. So that's yeah. an important mm. one. Um, I believe the buyback on your trauma is really important. So if what that means is if you have a claim for cancer, if you survive for longer than 12 months, you can buy back the policy and have it back in force without the claim that you just had. Right. And it can be quite specific. So it can mm. be breast cancer, prostate right. cancer, whatever it might be. Mm. But as Chris mentioned, if you went to another insurance policy, you wouldn't be able to get 
the cover again. If you've had chemo or radiotherapy um, or radiation, they might charge you more mm. to have the policy again. So mm. there's some that are really important. And everybody that I've had claim on trauma wants more. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? They've yeah. just seen the proof. That's wow. right. It works. Yeah. And yeah. not only has it worked, but you are now... It's real for you. So a lot mm. of people scare you into getting insurance or you insure your car, why don't you insure your biggest asset? Yeah, yeah. And scare doesn't work until mm. it happens to you. Mm. And it's either close enough that it matters, so yeah. your friends, your family, mm. and it's, oh, this is real, or you is probably the most real it can get. Yeah. yeah. And so there's, you know, we've talked a bit about trauma there. So what are the, the illnesses that it does cover and what it doesn't cover? Because I think people think it covers everything, but it doesn't. So there's, there's roughly 40-odd conditions that are covered, and we've got an hour, so I'll rattle them all yeah, off. Yeah, go. No, no. <laughs> but the major three, heart attack, cancer, and stroke. Mm. So they account for over three-quarters of the claims that people have, mm. but it covers everything through to adult insulin, diabetes, uh, coma, burns, you name it, it's mm. sort of in there. Mm. But you've got to be careful what the definition of each of those conditions are with each provider. So yeah. they do vary and some are better than others. So um, it's normally a Clark level score for cancer. So how many layers of skin it's gone into and the more severe it is, the more of a payment you get. So if you get a melanoma, you can sometimes get a payment, but it's only a partial compared to having a stage four cancer, for example. So, And even within the same insurer, there's sometimes different trauma policies, isn't there? Yeah, spot on. So you can have variations on any of these sort of ones with extras, without extras, those sorts of things too. And, look, I think a lot of people come to me without any cover, so getting some is a good step. Yeah. I find it's very difficult to go to absolute perfect case. And when I'm talking about insurance, I talk about the Rolls-Royce level of cover is where we start, right? Mm. And I don't know anyone who drives a Rolls-Royce. No. I don't know about maybe you guys do. But I definitely don't. So I say that Even we, if I could afford to, on the record, I wouldn't. <laughs> But I just sort of say that we need to try and get that back to a VW. So just be environmentally conscious one. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe not a good one anymore. But um, I guess for me it's just trying to give up some of the bells and whistles to, yeah. to protect most things and not all, but be aware of what you do and don't have. Well, it's like, it's like anything, you know, that final 5% probably costs more proportionally to everything else. Than the 95%. But we can get so bogged down. You go and talk to someone. <clears throat> I could talk for four hours about the ins and outs no. of a policy. You know what I mean? I yeah. could, you could. But ultimately I think what the best thing I can do is help people get to a point that they're comfortable with the decision yeah, they've made and they're better than they were. Yeah, for sure. And so if you only had limited money, what would be, where would you go? Um, in terms of obviously life insurance, you must have that if you've got kids because it's a and debt. Cat- catastrophic mm. scenario. Yeah. You're leaving a partner with kids, you know, they go from two incomes to potentially no income mm. because now they're a sole parent. And that, and life cover, you know, in my view, they're is actually so traumatized. Like, you know, they're, they're grief, you know, well, like that's it, right. It, exactly. You know, even if you do go back to work, I mean, I heard do recently same desire, yeah. a woman I know who's, whose husband died very suddenly, very unexpectedly, and she ended up having eight months off work, you know, it was just so catastrophic. So, mm. yeah, it's, it knocks a Sail, well, not the wind out of your sail, and it's a feet out from under you, all those things. So let's say you don't die, though, but you're actually, you know, you're worried about protecting yourself if you get ill or something like that. Where would be your go-to first? What would be the one you should should get? Well, I think the heart, I look at it, what's the hardest to replace with money, right? Mm. So life insurance is tough because it's a big number, typically. It's mm. going to be the biggest actual number that you need to insure. The next one I look at is income protection. But if you've got 
investment properties that are paying you income, mm. how much money do you earn if you're not at work? Yeah. That's the sort of yeah. thing that I look at there. And if your income from not working's enough for you to live off, that's not a problem for you, right? So don't do that. But for most people, that's the hardest gap to close. Yeah. So mm. how do you get to the point that you're getting enough money from somewhere that doesn't require you to be at work? Yeah. So I think if you're the main breadwinner, and I normally premise it with that, is yeah, if point. you're the main breadwinner, mm. then income protection is important. Yep. If you can afford to run your household on one income while someone's off on maternity yep. leave, paternity leave, then you don't need to insure it. Mm. So there's better way, ways to spend your money. Yep. So I think that's the best advice I can. Mm. It's sort of run it's through the pragmatic. scenarios. Well, it, honestly, mm. it's it's. The principle, that's why I love the principle approach is you can talk through it and then you can also repeat it. We're doing this because of these reasons. And that mm. way, look, I help people, but you don't have to be indebted to me, you know, mm. just because we've helped you in the start. If I don't do what I say that I'm going to do, I'm going, go somewhere else. Mm. Don't use me at all um, or do it yourself. And there are options for doing that. Well, I've done it myself only because I didn't know people like you existed. And, you know, it does my head in because, as I said, you, you've got lots of questions but you don't know where to go to get the answers and actual insurance companies can't answer your questions anyway. And it's like, well, oh, I don't know, I did the best I think I can work out. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of the things you'd go to an advisor and it's not their specialty, right? And yeah. so they, you know, unfortunately the industry is getting a bit more um, less owned by banks and institution and less more independent and so if you go to an advisor at least probably they're going to research the market a lot more than in the past if you walked into cba but you know i still think um you know it's got a long way to go in terms of you know um the commission element because a lot of people think they go to see a financial advisor um and they're just going to try to sell me as much insurance and there's not much trust there mm. do you think that actually happens where um, people are so worried about the advisor making lots of money that they end up not going to an advisor I actually think it's a warranted concern, to yeah. be honest. Mm. I, I see people who have come to me with policies that are crazy. You know what I mean? They, they are, in my opinion, yeah, they're, they're not they're not right. They're yeah. not how they should be and they're very difficult to justify. Mm. So um, when you're talking to someone, you place a lot of faith in them and I think that if they can't articulate why you've done what you've done, then it's very difficult to argue that that's the right advice. Mm. So the biggest one I see there is a waiting period on your income protection. Yeah. So what that means is how long you're off work before you start to get paid. The 30-day wait is twice as expensive as a 90-day wait. Mm. So if I meet someone and they've got half a million dollars in assets and cash and that sort of thing, and you've got a 30-day wait, you're wasting cash, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're really wasting cash because the idea of income protection isn't to stop and provide backup if you can't work for eight weeks because you broke mm. your leg. It's really to help you if you can never work again. So I, yeah. I do get frustrated when I see that stuff. Yeah. And yes, what people just not thinking. Well, it's, well, it's, it's or is it because they're getting better commissions. Oh, well, I, I do question mm. that. You know what I mean? Like yes. yeah. to answer your question, like you have to ask the question whether or not there's a conflict there between the way people are paid and not paid. And a commission's a hard one. We take commission on insurance. Mm. We get paid that way. Um, and the, the reason for that is that I don't give advice that's not right for people and I'm happy to walk away, you know. Like if I can't justify what I've done and I can't be honest with you about the fact I get paid, I do a lot of stuff for free, mm. a, a huge amount of stuff for free. Yeah. And the research really doesn't lie. So when I'm working out how much you need, I'll quote it with your super fund that you've already got, I'll quote it with the market, and then I put them next to each other. 
This is how much it costs. Mm. This is the quality of the product. And sometimes I lose. Mm. Um, and we had one last week that the guy was a smoker. Um, he was with the with BT, I think it was, and they don't discriminate between smokers and non-smokers. So his premiums were half as good as what I could do in the market. Mm. Oh. So I told him, go back to BT, adjust yeah. the cover levels to what they were. That's so backward, isn't it? But it's it's on their behalf. I'm surprised. Well, because they've got so many members, they can pull them all together and spread the risk across the book. As opposed, it's a bit like having multiple investors. That means a non-smoker is probably paying more in BT. (laughs) You both pay a little bit more for the privilege. Mm. Um, Yeah, and I mean, I think the the smoker thing is a big issue because, in your experience, Craig, um, how does it work with smokers, and how much does it affect the cost? A smoker in the eyes of an insurance company is anyone who's had. Cigarette or similar in the past 12 months. Yep. Right. One cigarette. That's that's it. You can get some exemptions like, you know, you might celebrate the birth of your child and have a wedding of the head and <laughs> smoke a Cuban. <laughs> you know what I mean? Very apt. Yeah. But um, you can have certain exemptions for that when you, you know, it's a one-off sort of yes. thing. Um, so a non-smoker is anyone who hasn't touched in the last 12 months. <laughs> if you're a social smoker, oh, I only smoke when I drink, um, it's still classed as a smoker for, mm. for premium rates. And what that does is it essentially adds about 40 to 50% extra wow. on your cost. You know, years ago, long, long, long time since I last had a cigarette, uh, I remember I was at that point where I was at wanting to get some insurance and, you know, I looked at that box and I went, I'm not even going to apply until I've actually given up. And so that was my incentive to actually give up so that I could apply for insurance. Well, the, the other thing is that if you do take on the cover as a smoker and you stop smoking, you can go back to the company and say, I'm, you make a stat deck or a statutory right. declaration and say, I'm a no, non-smoker anymore. And they'll change your premiums. And I always say that it sounds silly, but it doesn't matter what you do from then on. It's point of application. Right. So if you apply as a non-smoker and then decide that, oh, how good are these? And just become a 20-pack-a-day smoker, your premiums don't change after that fact. So you only have to declare at the point of the application. So you don't have to go back to them. So insurance is one of those things. It's that you only need to go back and tell them things if you want to make it better. So so a lot of really good thing. It should be like that because if I'm going to an insurance company and say, insure me today, right, and they go, Tell me everything that's happened in your past, and that's what they do, you know. And they so they factor all that into whether they want to make and you know take out the policy. They they're taking the risk, so they're saying, look, we actually want to take you on our books. There's nothing in your past that we're too concerned about. We're going to give it to you at standard rates, or you know, you have had some real issues with your back, or you have had some real issues. You maybe had you know some health issues with your heart. We will cover you for everything besides your back and your heart because it's just too risky for us mm. to cover that. But after that date, like. If I start getting, you know, back, um, you know, chest infection, or I start, you know, being yeah, but work, it's different to actually t- doing something yourself that is going to impact on your health. Well, it's, there's a lot of things there. It's like saying mm. you can't go out in the sun because of skin cancer. Yeah. So st- you have to stay. You have indoors. to have sun cream. You've got insurance now. You must slip, mm. slop, slap. And if you don't slip, slop, slap, you are going to pay more. Mm. But there are, the, the, I guess the way that insurance companies are moving now, and you see more and more of these are rewards programs if you're living a healthy life. So yeah. um, one of the big ones, AIA has done a vitality program. It's probably the best one. Mm. Um, and they're encouraging people to participate and com- or show, demonstrate good behaviour. Mm. So if you take 10,000 steps, if you go to the gym, mm. um, we'll give you a boost juice voucher or discount gym memberships and discount <laughs> flights. And mm. it's probably been the most successful one. Mm. Um, over in South Africa, it's so widely adopted that 
it's at supermarkets now. There's a vitality rate and a normal rate. Mm. And if you saw the Ashes recently, vitality is a major sponsor of, mm. of the cricket. So <laughs> that's probably moved a long way. And um, the others are doing a discount if you are a BMI's in a certain yeah. range, mm. you're a non-smoker, that sort of thing too. So they're probably encouraging better behaviour rather than punishing. It's more carrot than stick, if mm. you like. Yeah, interesting. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. Yeah, I agree with, with Craig. I've, when when clients do come in and I look at their insurance, um, it's quite common that I'll, you know, get a bit frustrated because I will see that, you know, someone's either overinsured in something mm. that, you know, it might be way too much trauma insurance and they haven't got income protection or they've got way too much mm-hmm. life cover and it's actually with the really expensive provider because they've got their super there. Um, and that's quite frustrating. But the biggest thing that frustrates me is something called step versus level premiums. Can you just explain? Because um, I don't, it's a vast majority of advisors recommend step premiums and don't take the, the time to educate on level premiums. Can you explain exactly what it is and why it's so important? Well, to bring it back to the property example, I think most people listening will be interested in that element. It's a bit like a fixed and a variable rate on your mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, the level premiums give you a bit more certainty about what the price will be, whereas a stepped premium is a bit like the variable rate, except there's no variation down. <laughs> um, so the stepped premiums start out cheaper, but get a lot more expensive as you get older. So if you think about a two axis, there's mm. costs and age. As you're younger, it's cheaper. And as you get older and yep. more likely to claim, it becomes more expensive. Mm. And not linear though. No, it's a hockey, it's a hockey stick mm. at the end. And it hockey sticks at the time when you're most likely to claim. So what the insurance companies, <laughs> they, they, all policies may not have been invented by insurance mm. companies, but they're certainly run by them and they know how to make money. So <laughs> they try and price you out at a point when you need it most. And so what most people do. Is that like deliberate? Well, yes. well it's, it's based on their actual uh, the actuaries, actuaries mm. yeah. <laughs> look mm-hmm. at the stats around claims and they work out pricing accordingly. Mm. So the riskier you get, the more they charge for the same level of cover. So what a lot of people do is they get their insurance done at the start. You know, they've just had kids and they've yes. taken it all out, done the right thing. But then they get older and their prices are now have gone mm. up. They've got into that area where it's a bit more risky and they're looking at it and they're like, we just can't afford to keep this anymore. Mm. Whereas if someone had, had at least had the conversation about yes. how level premium works, but there's super, <laughs> there's great di- discrepancies between level premiums as well. So mm. a lot of the companies, let's say that your premiums in the, they index by about 5%. Year one premiums are 100 bucks. year two, 105. Mm. Do you think most companies insure or index the 105 or the 100? 105. Most will index the indexed premium, so yeah. compound interest. That makes sense. Well, it kind of defeats the purpose of the, yeah. the level premiums. Mm. So there's some companies <laughs> that will index the original premium amount and they're called true level premiums. Right. And you'll notice I've got a client who's in his 50s now that took out the policy, obviously went to an amazing advisor, mm. had a, a cover with a 
provider that offer the true level premiums and his income protection costs are less than mine. You know what I mean? So it's crazy to sort of see those things. But the stupid thing is with income protection, it keeps going up every year, right? And yet the older you get, the less amount of time they have to pay you. That is very true. It's it's a cost to benefit point in time where um, if you did take out income protection, say in your 40s or 30s, um, and now you're in your early 50s to mid 50s, Income protection, as it gets exponential and you're getting through your 50, it's starting to get very expensive. It is. And you're right, if your claim period is going, because it claims you to 65, it's True. getting short every yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And there is a point in time when you're 50s, I think, where the cost to benefit, you do have to gamble on it. Secondly, you should have more assets in your 50s right. than mm. you do in your yeah. 40s and 30s. So it's income protection is something you do. And life cover is the other thing, you know. it's You should potentially not need as much cover, but let's say life didn't go to plan. Mm. And you, you know, got a divorce. Your half, you got health issues. You didn't work in your forties. Um, you haven't got much money in the bank. Well, in your fifties, you need that income protection because you're mm. the ones the most vulnerable, and your cost is going up every yeah. year, and you can't afford to not have it. Mm. And so, I think the the problem with step premiums is is that ideally you don't need it in your later life because you've done well and you've got money. But if you do need it, mm. if you go down the step path. You're going to have to. You're not going to be covered in your fifties because you won't be able to afford it. Um, the only option you really got is taking out level cover in your thirties. But I just don't think, unfortunately, um, people just don't know. They'll go see a financial advisor in their thirties, and the advisor just won't explain level premiums to them. Well, I can tell you, I've been to a number of advisors, different advisors over the years, you know, and I've had terrible explanation of this sort of stuff. But something I learned the other day, which you can tell us a bit more about, was that so say you got life insurance in your super and your beneficiary is your child, that the treatment of the benefit is different if that child is um, up to the age of 18 versus over the age of 18, right? Now, this is a big, big thing, certainly for me, Mm. because my daughter is my beneficiary, and hopefully it never happens, you know, one day will, I guess, but um, hopefully it definitely doesn't happen before she's 18. But I'm going to make a change to my life insurance policy as she turns 18. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you know exactly why I'm going to do that. Do you want to explain that? I I guess 18 is not necessarily, if they're financially dependent on you, it's it's still under the same superannuation rules. So if they're a a valid nomination for superannuation So she's at university for argument's sake. She'd be financially dependent on you still. So so you might buy yourself a bit more time Mm, in mm. that sense as well. Um, So... What are, the, the rules are for insurance owned through super are the same as your superannuation benefits. So there's valid and invalid mm. nominations. So you've hit on that spot on. So the well, idea, most people don't know that. Well, the other thing you could do is you could update your beneficiary. I'm assuming you've got a will. Mm. You can update your beneficiary so that your money gets paid into your estate. So a lot of people don't know that your superannuation and your estate assets are separate. Mm. So if you don't have them talking to each other, then you've essentially got this beautiful bit of paper that might set up testamentary trusts Mm. and beautiful tax-effective structures that isn't being used. So once you do that, you can actually set up your superannuation beneficiary to be your estate as opposed... And and then then how does the, the tax... The, the same rules apply. It's a valid nomination and then it depends who receives the benefits from the trust. So you can mm. set it up so that the, the distribution's the same mm. as what it would be. The reasons that you set it up in the first place, because your assets are over a certain amount, mm-hmm. so they can use all the yeah. tax-effective structures of the of the trust to distribute the benefits. Yeah, and please explain exactly what happens with that tax. So 
you know, why that matters. So you can lose a percentage of the balance to a non-valid nomination. So you'll lose up to 30%, I think it is. So basically it means that, so say, God forbid I die, my daughter is a dependent, um, so no, no, no biggie, she gets 100% of the benefit. But if she's 25, finished university, no longer dependent on me and I don't change that, she has to pay 30% tax on, on the benefit. Yeah. Yep, so a million dollars would become 700000 Yeah, so, and that's yeah. really critical and like it was an absolute mind-blower for me when I heard that. Yeah, I mean the real risk there is, you know, there will be people who, um, you know, are the last, you know, the couple, they're single, for example, or the partner's already passed away and they've got their money in super and they've got life cover in super mm. and then they've got no dependents and if you haven't got any dependents, um, and that means kids over the age of mainly 18, 21, you potentially could be liable for a form of almost inheritance tax basically. Mm, yeah. um, mm. And so you've got to be careful of that. But that's not if you have got a partner, that's not a problem. No. If you have got a child under 18, that's not a problem. But it can change, mm, right? You yeah. get divorced, that could potentially get rid of that. You know yeah, what I mean? There's things yeah. that happen. So it is something you've got well, to be careful of. That's your annual about. review. So there's some yes. of the, the things that change. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think it, it's worth talking about because I guess essentially it's it's money. for. If you look at it, it's money that wasn't expected. But mm. when the number's less than what you thought it would be and it's something that's an administrative. But also why pay tax if you can actually change it? Like in, in that, I think there's a real problem with the system Mm. Tax rules, if it's that obvious and it's that easy to get around. Well, the the tax (laughs) rules don't change because of the age. They actually just become not dependent on you anymore. So they Mm. don't satisfy the condition. So it's not that they've voided the, it's not a trick. No, but you can get around it and you Mm. would make decisions. Like you could withdraw, if you knew you were going to die, you could withdraw all your money out of your super, for instance, and and get it out of super and that way avoid your beneficiaries paying the tax, right? You can if... They, there used to be a joke that advisors would have the withdrawal forms sitting in the hospital drawer, yeah, you know, yeah. sign wants to send through. It does work that way. Uh, I just, <laughs> I, I just think that there are rules that are there, and they're there for a purpose, right? So it's it's designed to do, and you can set it up so that you can pay for the you could pay for the premiums directly as opposed mm. to through super. You mm. know what I mean? Like yeah. that would yeah. change. However, the, but it is advised a lot of. I was advised to take my because originally my life insurance was paid outside of super. I was advised to change it. You've done the right thing. Yeah, I, I, from. Mm. 99% of people yeah. out of 100, it makes sense to mm. have it through your super. And you just then need to address, I think there's one thing to get the money yeah. or ensure the benefit and it's then getting it in the right hands mm. with as little tax as possible. Yeah. So super, um, a lot of people think that they've got enough cover through super, but what you know, what are the problems with just taking that kind of bit of ignorance is bliss sort of model where mm-hmm. I've got cover in super, I don't need to look at this thing. What's the is, problems is with it? Is it like travel insurance on your MasterCard? Yes, well, same same sort of you know reality, I it's, guess. There's travel insurance and there's travel insurance. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I I think life insurance is pretty universal, right? Yes. So life insurance is life insurance, pretty much. There's some subtle differences between one policy and the next, but if you've got a million dollars worth of life insurance with your super fund versus a million dollars that you went out and paid someone to do for you, mm. they're pretty pretty similar, right? Um, the TPD gets a little bit different. There's some different definitions on their own, any occupation, that sort of thing too, but mm-hmm. they start to become a little bit more, there's some variation mm-hmm. in there. And, and what is TPD though? Like what, um, what, why would I need it, I guess? TPD is the lowest percentage chance of claim out mm. of all the covers that are around. Right. So I've had four claims for TPD for the clients that I've looked after in 14 years, whereas we do multiple trauma policies a year, multiple income protections a year, and I've done lots of life insurance claims, um, probably 
Uh, but we're all going to die at one Well, point. probably yeah. unfairly <laughs> skewed. I did a pro bono work through the Cancer Council, so right. I'd meet with people who had been put into a position that they got this diagnosis, they didn't know what to do, and I met with them and helped them access the benefits from their super fund. So wow, I did. Yeah. And it was awesome for me because I was just starting out. And the hardest mm. part for an insurance advisor is having people that claim. It staggers me that a lot of people that have been advising or advising yeah. insurance haven't helped someone with a claim. Now, the percentages mm. on it are about 70% of people with insurance go directly to the insurer when they claim. And mm. someone's getting paid all this money over the years and they don't help this them. Is the value. It's when wow. you, you prove that it works. So, so that's a key point in time when mm. you should be going to your advisor because, you know, there are times I'm sure with your claims where if they went directly to the insurer or they went through you, you know, technically you shouldn't get a better result. But can you please, you know, can you give an example of where you definitely think you've got a client a better result than if they just went direct? Well, I'll tell you, one of the pro bono cases I did, it was a lady who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Her kids were going through HSC. Um, her husband had just gone bankrupt and she was working at Australia Post up in Sydney. And uh, they came in and met with me and I found she had 80 something dollars left in her super fund through work. Um, if she had been told that she wasn't working at post office anymore, she needed a minimum of $1,500 in that account to keep it active and keep her insurances active. I rang the post office and I asked the guy not to take her off the books. So we maintained that. I went to put money into her account personally, uh, which is completely illegal and almost got in massive trouble from wow. my licensee <laughs> at the time for doing it. Uh, but essentially I helped them with the paperwork. We submitted all the claims. It got declined the first time, got declined for a terminal illness benefit being that she was given less than a certain period to live. And it was because the doctor had put on the form, is it not likely that the client has less than two years to live? And he just ticked the wrong box. Oh. Yeah. And so we submitted the claim. It came back and it was declined. I got all the forms back and I looked at it and it was wrong. So I called the doctor and I said, did you know that you put this on the form? He, oh, no, I made a mistake. We corrected the form to what it was yeah. actually meant to say, resubmitted the claim, and I got to deliver a $350,000 check to oh. the client that I'd also ensured wasn't going to be picked up in the bankruptcy claims that her husband was wow. having too. So um, it helped them out massively. And yeah. the card that I got after that, she said she couldn't call me because she couldn't talk to me without crying. Wow. Yeah. And it was <laughs> this was one of the first claims that I'd ever done. And How rewarding. It was amazing. Mm. Right? And, and really for me, that's when I started to love insurance, mm. when it was like the difference that it makes at the right yeah. time. Yeah, I, I still have conversations yeah. where people think I'm a shonk and I'm trying to sell them everything under mm. the world. And you can think what you want, but mm. at the end of the day, well, I know. <laughs> so I can see it in your face. I mean, mm. I can see how rewarding that whole thing was. Yeah. Um, yes. I've got a client who I'm guessing she's maybe in her early 40s and she had a stroke. And and had in the appropriate insurance, and we ended up buying an apartment for her outright. Um, and so she, because otherwise she was basically forced to move back out of Sydney to sort of a rural area where her seventy odd year old mother was living, and and she was living back there being cared for her mother because she can't actually go back to full time work. Yeah. Um, and that is the complete benefit. She's living an independent life now. She's doing, I think, a bit of sort of part-time work. But she's living independently now because of her insurance, you know. Yeah, I think well, that's really the reality. If you haven't got cover and something goes wrong, whether it's a short-term illness or a long-term illness, there's usually an impact on your family. Um, you know, your partner has to stop working. Yeah. Your partner has to work more. 
Um, mm. You have to live with your parents. Um, they have to stop work. They have to take care of you. You need care. Mm. There's all these other things where you didn't have cover and all the old people that you love yeah. now have all the impact from it. So you're really not doing, I think you're not really doing insurance for yourself. You're doing it for others. Mm. You have to pay for it, but it's not you that really gets the benefit. Yes, you might, but it's all the people around you that, Get the True, although I tell you what, I mean, if you in that situation, for instance, how much better to live independently still? That's right. Yeah, yeah. so it is still for yourself as well. But yeah, you, I agree. It's, it's for everyone. <laughs> you, you see those, and I'm sure you've seen them as well. When something tragic happens at a sporting club or something like that, you see the GoFundMe pages. Yeah. So I just think that you don't want to gamble on the no. generosity of your friends. You know mm. what I mean? Like, no. And it kind of, in some ways, it frustrates me when I see those sort of things because I'm like, you really could have fixed this for you could have quite a small yourself. amount of money mm. and you mm. wouldn't have to go. But obviously you're sympathetic and you, you put your 50 yeah. bucks in or whatever it is, but it really doesn't help long-term. It fixes yeah. a, a quick problem. And to come back to your point on the, the claims element of it, it's just nice to have someone that's not emotionally invested at the time. So mm. you talk about your client who had the stroke, you talk about these people that have all these other things going on, I don't look. I care, and I care about the person that it's happening to. But it's not happening to You're me. Not emotionally. So I'm not invested. emotionally invested, <clears throat> and I know who to call. So I can call one person where they might have to call five. Mm. And so if it gets to the point where the decision's not right, I can take it up a level or up a level mm. until it gets to the point. And you can just I can push harder because you know where to push. If yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that. Insurance providers, if you have written a lot of insurance, you've got a relationship with the insurance provider. They do want to keep you because you've supported their business. Mm. They want to support you as an advisor um, to make sure that they deliver on what they're promised to your clients. Yeah. Because end of the day, if you know Craig's recommended a client, let's say it's one path. If one path don't pay out to his clients, is Craig going to recommend one path mm-hmm. to his other clients? No chance. Exactly. And so yeah. the insurance company is more likely to want to support the advisors. I think another issue where I think advisors and definitely add a lot of value, which um, technically they shouldn't be able to, um, but they can, is around assessment of applications. You mm. know, um, Craig, I mean, how does it work when you lodge an application and the insurance company has some questions regarding their history? How do you help there to make sure the client gets the best outcome? I, I think it's a little bit like submitting a, a loan. Yes. So when a loan goes into a bank, Uh, they just get to see what's written on the document. So Mm -hmm. there's no context to the fact that you had six months off work. And so they look at that as a gap in income and they go, your loan doesn't fit our criteria. Whereas if you provided some context and it was just, I took six months off because I'd sold a business and I got, you know, Mm. it makes it a bit more of a story that the bank can assess the loan like they should on its merit. So I guess the way that I help is provide some context to the answers and I don't just submit it as, something Mm. that is on there black and white, Mm -hmm. which automatically sets it off onto a box with a decline or exclusion or a loading. I just believe that I will, uh, I call it beast mode. I argue with insurance companies more than anyone in the world, I reckon. I spend so much time on the phone and I always say to the people when I'm talking to them up front is that my job is to sit on your side against the insurance company. We'll put it in Mm. and they're going to come back with all these decisions. These are the likely decisions. But if you don't like the outcome, don't do it you know, and walk away. And Mm. what that sometimes means, and I had one recently, a client of mine, he was in the Bali bombings back in 2001. He had sleeping tablets for two months when he got back. Whatever, however many years that is ago now, 18 Mm. years, got a mental health exclusion on his policy with one provider. And I Mm. pushed 
as hard as I could with that company. I took it to state manager, national manager, mm. head of underwriting, and they'd made a decision and it was the wrong decision, which they admitted, but they couldn't go back on that decision. So then I go back to the rest of the market, tell them the story, and we managed to place it somewhere else the same way you would with a bank. If you mm. get declined because it doesn't fit their box, you yeah. take it somewhere else. So you essentially say that about at the market. I think it's, you know, it's, it is very true where, um, you know, in my experience where, um, we've got the clients much better outcomes with the insurer than if they lodge that application themselves because we've had conversations with the mm. underwriter direct, not through someone else, the actual person assessing the application mm. we talk to. And especially if you've got market knowledge, you know that other insurance providers would cover that client. So you say, look, if we don't, if you won't cover us, we will go to, you know, TAO, we'll go to AIA. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more example of what's happening in the insurance market? Because I think a lot of people just think, you know, they can pick a provider and it'll be fine forever. But the last five years have kind of proven that that's not really okay. You've got to pick more of a solid provider. Yeah, I, I think there's there's some new entrants. So you'll see a couple of new entrants that are coming in and they're trying to take away a few of the frustrations of the industry. So <laughs> the industry's got some typical legacy books or like a lot of policies that they've had in place for a long period of time, which comes with its own problems. So these newer market people that are coming into the market are trying to speed up the time that it takes. And there's some ridiculous times that, you know, if you submit your application, it takes 73 years for a doctor to get a report back, all these sort of <laughs> things that happen. So they're trying to streamline that process to help it a better experience for you as a customer. The other thing that's happening is that we're seeing it contract. So the insurance companies are gobbling each other up. So right. recently Zurich have bought OnePath, mm -hmm. um, AIA have bought Cominsure. Um, so they're consolidating these businesses into bigger. Is this part of the fallout of the Royal Commission? A little Some people are stepping away from insurance mm. altogether or trying to get away from it. Mm -hmm. um, and others are just not. I just think that my dream would be that each insurer specialises in something, you know mm, what I mean? So yeah. Zurich specialises in property developers and um, so you kind of, everybody knew that, you know, it's like APIA. Yeah. If you're over mm. 65, you're going somewhere for aged pension mm. stuff, mm. right? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. That would be my dream because it just makes it clear and then you could get competitive advantages. So they would focus primarily on their mark. I would love that to happen, but yeah. I and don't think it will. And they therefore understand all the risks that are inherent and mm. particular to that market. So until yeah. such time as that happens, I think everybody's got sweet spots that they prefer and, the, and that's my job to know yeah. what those ones are. So some prefer fly in, fly out miners or mm. um, professionals or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, so and some yeah. of who, who are these providers? Because I think... Um, you know, people don't really know if you want life cover, who are some of the companies that you use? Because, you know, they're not really massive mainstream, but once people, they go, I've heard of those, you know. Yeah, so Zurich, AIA, OnePath, who's been bought by Zurich. Mm. You've got uh, Tal, you've got, uh, who else, Neos are some of the newer mm -hmm. ones. AIA. AIA, yep. Integrity, um, MLC, AMP. Yeah, lot, there's there's mm. heaps. Um, but AMP still around? Well, they're not getting a lot. No. <laughs> but I mean, that's an interesting story, though. Like, they're one of the providers that have a lot of legacy issues. Um, and, you know, they were, you know, basically their insurance book was losing money every year. Um, and, you know, you can see what's happened to the AMP share price. But, you know, they basically had to sell their insurance company. They sold it to a company in New Zealand um, for resolution. And that's all kind of because they were just losing money. So if you had an insurance policy through AMP and you've got an AMP super fund, you've got AMP insurance, you've got to be a bit worried mm. because you don't know what 
you know, whether that's going to be a long-term sustainable model, they can up your prices at any point in time. So you've got to be really careful when you select an insurance company, you pick someone that's an established player that's growing, that's in a good position because they're less likely to want to screw you over as a customer, I guess. And I think the other frustration I get as an advisor is I meet with someone who has moved insurance companies multiple times. You know what I mean? It's It's a bit of a telltale sign that... It's not a very nice process. No, God, be, that's, that's the thing. You want to avoid it. God, so I, yeah. I honestly try and maintain where I can. Mm. That, that's genuinely my intention is to make it as less of a pain point for you as mm. it possibly can be. But the reality of it is, and you talk about commissions and that sort of thing, if you move policies, you get paid each time. Um, yes. So let's say I moved oh, one right. year from here to yeah. another provider. As an advisor, you get paid. I get paid, mm. which benefits me. And mm. most people do it, and it's you might say fifty bucks. And I'd say, would would it be worth going through all this exercise potentially and getting and the risk of not getting mm. what you want now to go through that whole thing? And the answer is no. I, I find it very difficult to justify that. And the challenge is that. You could find anything in a policy and say, oh, did you know that this doesn't cover you as well for this anymore? Yes. You could find a reason that people should move uh, if you had bad intentions. And mm. I I can't fix that problem. I don't mm. think commission versus non-commission will fix that issue mm. because it just comes down to the integrity of the person, yeah. really. Yeah, um, yeah. That's the reality. If you go to an good insurance advisor who's got your best interests at heart they will research the whole market they will structure the policy the right way you know yes they could potentially try to make more money but if they've got your best interests at heart they're not even thinking like that they're just thinking this is what we think is the best recommendation and then sometimes you scale it back if they can't afford it you know that's really what happened Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Craig, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I do. I We spoke a bit about the estate planning side of things and I think a lot of people with property, when I'm speaking to them, the insurance and the estate planning go hand in hand. So when we're talking about these sort of things, I meet with a lot of people that might have a 99%, 1% ownership, that sort of thing. And so the, the on the property, on the property yeah. ownership. So it doesn't actually reflect the position that they're in. So and that might happen, for instance, if um like they might husband, I mean this is stereotypical, of course, but husband may have a um business, then they want to protect the assets. So they put 99% in the wife's name who's not working. Once again, stereotypical. Um, however, if that's where the assets lie and insuring it, then there's a disproportionate in terms of the actual contribution. It's, it's more yeah. so um, take off the insurance for altogether, but it's more the estate planning ele- element right. of it that it doesn't actually reflect the position. So they mm. haven't considered it. They haven't spoken about it. And if something happens to one or both of them, yeah. they walk around, they leave a mess. So yeah. the biggest property dumbo I could say would be you do all these fancy things but you, f- you neglect the easy part which is getting the document that just articulates what you've actually done. Oh, the will? Yeah. Right, okay. And, and on that because tenants in common, I don't know if it's the same in Victoria but in New South Wales for instance, on the front page of a contract you've got tenants in common or you've got um, joint tenants, thank you, and the tenants in common is where you can change the proportion. And so if you're a joint tenant, so most married couples, for instance, will buy a property as joint tenants, so you don't even have to tick that box because that's actually what it defaults to. And so say, Chris, you died, your wife Mel will just automatically get the rest of the house, right, or vice versa, whereas if you tick the joint 
sorry, the tenants in common box, it can still be 50-50, but then your half goes into your estate Mm-hmm. And then poor old Mel's got to sort of fight out that. Um, or you can switch, you can actually change the proportion, it might be 10%, 90% or something like that. But, yeah, the whole point is it goes into the estate. And what a nightmare for the person left over, they might end up homeless. Yeah. I think it's a good point because I think, you know, how do you, because insurance is maybe 80% of it, but, you know, what's how do you help on people around the actual estate planning? Like what do you think's really important there for people to consider because we didn't cover that. Well, I'm not a solicitor, so I don't execute the documents, but I've certainly spoken a lot about this part because I think you're kind of doing half the job if you Mm. get all this money, but then you don't correctly tell it where to go. So um, your point, Veronica, about where it goes and tax implications and that sort of Mm. thing, you could be insuring for a number, but that's not the amount that actually goes there. So Mm. we have a lot of conversations around these sorts of things as to who should own it, but why? Not just put it through super. Yeah. Done. You know, what are some of the other things in that kind of will that people, because, you know, some people think that you can go and get a, you know, in the Australian Post before you can get a $9.90 will and that's fine. But (laughs) what are the things that you really need to think about with a will? Because- a lot of people just haven't done it. Well, a cheap will becomes expensive very fast. So uh, the will kit goes to the state trustees and the state trustees take a percentage when they pay out the will, so oh, will, when the will is executed. So um, <laughs> what is cheap becomes expensive very fast. Yeah. Um, so I just think gotcha. that, but it's hard because you you normally do all this stuff when you start a family. So not only are you potentially going down to a reduced income for a period of time, you've now got an extra mouth to feed, you now need insurance and you probably bought a new house. Um, you've now got to go and spend 1300 bucks on a will. But yeah. do, do you know what I mean? Like you've got all this sort of stuff that just hits you like a ton of bricks. Mm. And so for me, when I'm talking to people that have just bought a house, I just say go and get that sorted, right? Get it settled, get everything done, get into that house because this isn't going to help get that property settled. Mm. Yes, there's a risk, right? If something happens between now and then, but if you try and do everything at once, you'll do nothing. Yes. So, yeah. so yeah. I just think chunking it down and getting it done methodically works. And there's ways to do it that you can completely handball it to somebody else if you want to, like step back completely, get the solicitor to do it, but you're going to pay for that privilege. Mm. And I think most people, if you go to a solicitor, it's pretty common, right? Uh, like even if you've got blended families, whatever it might be, it's nothing that the solicitor hasn't spoken about yes. before. So, yeah, no, it's really I've, good advice. I mean, that's you. I think I really like the bite-sized chunks because um, a lot of people will go see an advisor or whoever, mm. and there'll be all these things that they should do. But it's also about just trying to do one at a time. Get the, you know, make sure you don't stuff any of them up. Rather than, you know, because you get over, you know, too much. Yeah, you know, you too just, much. And you end up not doing it. Or you do half-assed jobs and then you kind of, you know, you don't ever do it again. You don't ever review it. So I think with the um, the solicitor and the lawyer is it is one thing that you could probably just do it once, get through the pain, well, yeah. one put thing, it in the drawer and forget about one it. One thing really. I would add in there is that you do need to go to a lawyer who is actually very experienced in estate planning. Yes. It's a bit like a property lawyer. There's lawyers and there's lawyers. There's people who think they can write a will or that sort of stuff. But I think it's really important that you get someone who can actually go through all those different scenarios, particularly with our complicated family structures these days, um, and and go through it. what are your intentions? What do you really want to happen if if the worst should happen? And you really need something called a testamentary trust if you've got kids. Mm. But, you know, if you don't know you need that and you haven't got it, you know, then I guess you, you really kind of open yourself up to, you know, you just you would just, when you get paid out life insurance, you would just wish someone told you you need a testamentary trust. And I think the challenge is as well, 
going to meet with a solicitor is difficult, you know, yeah. finding the time to do it. So there's there's people that are doing it now via video and they'll do all these sort of things. Yeah. But even signing the documents with a will is an absolute nightmare. You yeah. have to have witnesses mm. and original copies. And I just think if we could find a way to make these things easier, you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. Yeah, the thing that more, frustrates more me. Do it, more yeah. people would mm. do it if it was easier and it would probably get cheaper too. So I, I think sort of watch this space on that one, mm. that this will be an area that will move. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I think um, all this is really important stuff. We haven't had a conversation about insurance yet. And mm. normally you think it'd be really boring, but you were not boring. So thank you so much. <laughs> oh, I'll take that thank as you a Craig. slight compliment. <laughs> <laughs> we want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, let's expand on this idea of getting value from advisors that earn money from a commission. So as you know, I'm very much um, somebody who believes in fee for service, but there are certain industries such as mortgage broking um, and obviously insurance broking where that's not really the done thing. And so, you know, insurance brokers get paid obviously a commission, trailing commission over many years and so do mortgage brokers. So let's talk about how to get the most out of that service that effectively you've paid for in a way because it's built into the pricing of whatever you bought. So if you bought a mortgage effectively, it's built into the pricing of your mortgage. If you bought insurance, it's built into the pricing of your insurance. That's the model of the way the industry works. So we've discussed this a few times, you and I, Chris, in terms of the annual reviews that mortgage brokers might do with their clients as well. So I thought you might have some good ideas for how consumers, you know, property owners, certainly people who are dealing with brokers or insurance brokers, anyone that is providing them advice, but actually not getting paid directly from the consumer, how best to get value out of that? Well, I mean, you really need someone that's going to give you a service that's not just getting you the product, really, is actually advice. Mm. Um, if you go see a broker and you walk in and then they just say, look, um, you know, I think you should, the best rate in the market is 299 do you want to go with that? Well, you know, if there's not an actual strategy around structuring interest only, principal and interest, you know, cross secure and don't cross secure, you know, do you need offsets, you know, actual mortgage strategy, then really why are you even using the broker? Potentially you could just go online if you know the strategy yourself um, and get an online product. So the a lot good of people advice- don't realise that you can have a strategy or there is such a thing as a strategy. They're just thinking you're going and getting a mortgage. Exactly. And so a good when you sit down with a good mortgage broker, though, who's someone who's asking you questions even around what you're doing mm-hmm. um, and, you know, making sure that you're doing something that fits into your longer-term plan, I think um, you know, that's where you'll get a really good experience from a mortgage broker that does a lot more than just get you the product. At the end of the day, they'll still get you the product. Mm-hmm. A good broker will still get you the best rate and will still choose them as your lender. will actually give you other options as well. Um, I mean, we're doing a loan at the moment. Like a, a client who we've got them at 85% no LMI through a bank that, you know, it's not advertised. You know, it's only because we applied, we asked for an exemption, we got it. Um, anyway, he would have worked for 80% elsewhere and not had much money in his bank. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it's not advertised that rate or that structure. So that's where a good broker will help you. Yes, you end up might get the same product as if you searched online, but there would have been a lot of advice around it. It's the same with insurance. I think with insurance is even, you know, it's a lot more complex um, mm. than broking because there's lots of um, buttons, yes, no, do we need that, do we not need that, how much is it, should I get it? Um, you know, there's probably 50 different things you could have to say yes or no to. And unless you've got someone who really understands the cost of benefit, um, 
will probably say no to most of them, but yes to probably three or four. And it's just knowing what to say yes to. And then secondly, um, you've got to be really careful with the financial advice and insurance because good advisors will go and research the whole of the market and will go and do a comparison with everything and then pick the cheapest insurance provider that gives you the best product. But unfortunately, a lot of advisors will just recommend who they're licensed through. So if you go to a, you know, a bank type financial advisor, they will just recommend that bank's product. Yeah. And so, and unfortunately, that's happened for years. So you really need to make sure when you are sitting down with the advisor, what's this, the advice, the strategy, the structure, focus on those things. And then once you've got that, ask them to show you the evidence how they went to the market and why they're choosing that insurer because a good advisor will be able to just rattle it off and then you'll know that you're in the right place. And a bit the same with a mortgage broker and it's, actual loan recommendation. It's the same recommendation. Mm-hmm. Like when we're recommending, we don't just, you know, automatically assume it's going to be the best bank. We kind of then make sure that is the best bank. We go back to our panel and go, yeah, actually, no, no, it is Macquarie or no, it is ING or whoever it is. Um, we have actually done that. So when a client asks us that, we've got the knowledge there. Mm. So it's not like we're like, f- you know, flap, flapping, trying to come up with a reason why we're recommending, you know, now. To suit your own. Yeah, exactly. Nefarious. Good brokers will be able to explain, no, this is the best option. So Craig did talk about annual reviews with mortgage broking. How often should a client say, go back to their broker and say, look, I need, I would like everything reviewed? Yeah, it's, it's fair enough to go every year and just say, look, can I get better pricing? There's no reason. You're either yes or no. You can send off a pricing request at every bank. Um, some banks make it much more difficult to get a better rate. So if you sign into a contract two years later, that rate's no longer as competitive. Mm-hmm. A lot of banks make it a nightmare to get on a better rate. But some banks you can just literally do an online form and then it's applied straight away. So it does. Um, and, and, if, and unfortunately, you have to do that every year or two because the banks, the way that they make money, it's not off getting you as a new customer, it's off existing customers who are on poor rates. So you have to keep on top of your mortgage because, and also it's your biggest expense in life, really. It's where you're, you know, you don't spend, you think about how much interest you might be paying a year. It could be 10, 20, 30, $40,000 a year. So you really need to make sure you can just keep tweaking it. Please join us for our next episode when we actually have an argument, a full-blown argument. Both Chris and I have an argument with our guest next week, Dr. Andrew Wilson, who is possibly Australia's best-known independent property economist. Now, you're going to have to tune in because this is a doozy. You are going to learn a lot about auction clearance rates, and that's really important. You're also going to learn what we argued with him about and you got to stay to the end because it's a good one. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.